Uh, turn to your Bibles, please, in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we come this morning to the parable of the persistent widow. And uh, in all parables, we need to be careful uh, over our interpretation because there is a a danger and a tendency to read too much into them. I remember someone coming to me uh, and having a discussion about the sovereignty of God and prayer. And they turned to this parable and they said, look, here is proof that God changes his mind through the persistent praying of his people. Now that's um, like saying, well, if if um, all our sin is forgiven, why do we need to confess our sin? Or it's like saying, um, if God chooses a people for himself, why do we engage in evangelism? Now, this individual turned to this parable to show me how God changed his mind in response to the prayers of God's people, that the judge was pestered in to answering the widow's prayer. Now, of course, that on a basic level contradicts the um, doctrine of the immutability of God, that God does not change his mind. But also, it contradicts the very parable itself, because Jesus is teaching us in this parable not only by parallel, and parallel and parable come from the same Latin or French word, which means to lay alongside, but but you can't just identify the judge with God and see a parallel in that, because in this parable, Jesus is teaching not only by parallel, but by contrast. And by contrast, there is a teaching in the similarity between God and the judge, but also in the contrast between God and the judge. It's important that we bear that in mind as we come to our study this morning. Now, notice three things with me. First of all, uh, the need for the Christian to pray. J.C. Ryle describes prayer as the very life breath of true Christianity. It is where religion begins, where it flourishes, and where it falls. And that is true. Uh, And for that reason, it is probably the best indicator temperature, thermometer, by which we can gaze the spiritual temperature of an individual or a church. Neglect of prayer, both private and public, is uh, is surely an indication of the low spiritual temperature of that individual or the low spiritual temperature of that church. Now, in this parable, we have a widow. 
We have a widow with an adversary, and we have a widow with an adversary who is exploited by that adversary. Now, that very simply are the, uh, those, uh, that's very simply the reasons why the Christian and the church needs to pray. Because the church is a widow, the church has an adversary, and the church is exploited by that adversary. You'll notice the immediate context of the parable is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our study last week, verse 30, chapter 17, verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The Son and uh, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the flood or the destruction of Sodom. That is to say, it will come unexpectedly and unpredictably. He will come at a time we think not. Now, you will notice the close of the parable is uh, Jesus returns to the same subject of the glorious return uh, of the Lord. I tell you, verse 8, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. So like two great bookends, this parable uh, is preceded and followed by the second coming. So the context of the parable is the church looking, waiting, and longing for the coming, the second coming of her Lord. The church and the Christian are represented by the widow. In other words, the church waits for the coming of the Lord in a widow-like state. Widows in New Testament times were extremely vulnerable. Without a male breadwinner, they were dependent upon the charity of the people of God or often uh, driven into prostitution. So the picture of the church or the individual as a widow indicates something of their vulnerability as they wait for the return of the Lord. Now, the bridegroom, of course, is not dead, but he has gone away, and the church waits in widow-like condition for his return. The bridegroom has ascended into glory, and without his bodily presence, the church remains in this world to serve him and to wait for the glorious return. Now, of course, it's true in a very real uh, spiritual sense, the church still knows the presence of the Lord. For where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst that Jesus promised that when he ascended into glory, he would send another comforter to strengthen and help his people. But nevertheless, the church is like a widow. She waits uh, for the coming of the Lord. Now again, she's not only a widow, she is a widow with an enemy, an adversary. In this world, we have a great implacable enemy who has sworn his determination to disrupt, destroy, and discourage the church of Jesus Christ. Peter describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is known as the God of this world, the accuser of the brethren, the prince of the power of the air. Our Lord describes him in Luke 11 as the strong man fully armed. And those of us who are Christians have deserted him and pledged our allegiance to the captain of our salvation. And we are of special interest to him. We are in his sights. And he is determined to undermine our faith, our confidence, and our testimony. We have a great adversary, the devil, says Peter in First Peter 5 and verse 8. 
So the church is a widow, the church has an adversary, and the church is exploited and treated with contempt by that adversary. We find this uh, adversary of the widow exploiting her condition to such a degree that some great injustice has been done. Perhaps she had been turned out of her home. Perhaps her children had been taken from her and sold into slavery. Perhaps she had been taken advantage of uh, in, in some way as a, uh, as a woman without the protection of a, a male member of the family. And she wants justice. She wants her case to be settled. Again, the church and the people of God greatly suffer in this world. A world that despises their values, their standards, the very gospel that they preach. At times it seems, as the psalmist repeatedly tells us, that it's the righteous who suffer and it's the wicked who prosper. We're told in Revelation 6 and verse 10 that the martyrs, those who have died for their faith under the altar, cry out continually, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Injustice and mistreatment seem part of our calling as a Christian in this world. And sometimes we're tempted to say, why do you allow it, O God? Why is it so difficult, so hard? Why is it so unfair? Why is it when I seek to do what is right, I'm misunderstood and maligned? Why pray? Jesus told us, verse 1, This parable to show the disciples that they should pray and not lose heart, not give up, says the NIV. We should pray. We're widows. Christ has ascended into glory. We have this implacable enemy who's out to attack and undermine our faith. And we face continual injustice from the hands of that enemy. We must pray. Pray. We need to pray for strength. We need to pray for grace. We need to pray for help. Mountains can only be climbed on our knees. John Blanchard says to attempt any work for God without prayer is like trying to launch a space probe with a pea shooter. To attempt any work for God without God is to mock God. Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling vulnerable? Are you uh, experiencing defeat in your life? Could it be, could it be that we do not sense our, um, our widowhood and our absolute dependence upon God? Herman Heinko, the Dutch theologian, says, uh, the saints do not always pray as earnestly as they should. This is because they do not live with a clear consciousness of their widowhood. Do you pray? Do you believe that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees? Did you pray this morning? Before you came to church, did you pray this week? Heaven finds an ear when Christians find a tongue. Do you pray with the people of God? You remember those special promises attached to collective praying. Jesus says in, in Matthew, if two or, Matthew 18, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them. 
Agree, that word agree means to sound together, to blend your voices, to harmonize your prayers. When you pray together, a, a, a special promise is given that he will hear our prayers. The need for the Christian to pray. The Christian is a widow. The Christian has an adversary and the Christian is exploited by that adversary. Secondly, notice the incentives for the Christian to pray. I remember I said by introduction that Jesus is teaching not only by parallel in a parable, but he's teaching in this uh, parable by contrast. The bad actions of a bad man teach us about the good actions of a good God. That, that the judge and God are not the same. They are different. Notice the difference in character. We are told in verse 2 that the judge who uh, neither feared God nor respects man, regarded man. He feared not God, neither regarded man. This judge was ungodly and uncaringly, uh, uh, and uncaring. He blatantly flouted both tablets of the law. Remember Jesus summarized the law, the first tablet of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second tablet of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. But this man neither feared God nor regarded his neighbor. He is devoid of religious principles and the motivation that comes from one's faith. And he's devoid of public opinion. He is unloving, uncaring. He's neither religious nor is he a humanitarian. Our God is completely different. He is loving and gracious and compassionate. This God acted selfishly. Our God always responds graciously to the cries of his people. We have this confidence, writes John, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And what is that confidence based upon? Well, the continual, continuous theme of First John, God is love. That our confidence is based upon the fact that God is a God of love. Remember, uh, Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 7. He says, which of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So no Jewish father, if his son asks for um, bread, is going to give him a a stone, those little barley loaves that... uh, Jewish families were so um, uh, uh, appreciative of. Well, no father's going to hold out a stone to his son and let his son bite into it in case he breaks a tooth. Snake flesh and fish flesh are very similar, similar in texture. It's hard to tell the difference, especially in a stew. But the snake to a Jew was unclean. It was defiling. And no Jewish father is going to defile his son by giving him... Uh, a snake. And we are sinful, yet we know how to treat our children well and give good gifts to our children. How much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? You see, our confidence in prayer is based upon the character of God. 
He is loving. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is a good God who delights to do good for his children and answer their requests. We should pray because there's a God in heaven who loves us. Perhaps some of you are Christians and you're saying, look, um, look, I, I don't know if God's ever going to, to answer my prayers. Uh, he, he, he's uh, angered with me. He's, uh, I've sinned uh, against him. But he's a good God. He's a loving God. Maybe some of you aren't Christians and you're saying to yourselves, well, you know, look, I've sinned and I have defied the great God of heaven. I've fallen into the, the, the depths of depravity and God would never want me. But listen, he's a good God. He's a, he's a God of love for God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He is a God who loves each one of us and will not turn away from us when we sincerely come to him. So why pray in the contrast between the judge and God, the character of God? Secondly, our relationship to our God. The woman in the parable was a stranger to the judge. seems there was no social, familial, or uh, religious um, relationship between them. Perhaps he was a uh, a Roman, a Roman judge placed there by Rome. He wasn't even a Jew. He simply wants her out of his hair. He is fed up with her. And eventually he gives in to uh, uh, her requests. Now, by contrast, God has a special relationship with all of his people. This is the great contrast between Jesus and the judge. Between God and the judge. Look at verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Do you see that? We have a relationship with God because we are his elect, his chosen ones, says the NIV. That we are his people. We are the apple of his eye. There is this uh, eternal bond between us. He, before the very foundation of the world, chose us for himself. Why he chose us is one of the great mysteries of the faith. He chose a great number that no man can number, uh, uh, a great multitude that no man can number. He, he gave them to his son and his son came into the world and poured out his, his blood, laid down his life for the sheep and he has called them out of darkness into the mar- his marvelous light and he has adopted them into his family. Do you not think that God will hear The prayers of such people, their cries, their sighs, their murmurings, their pleas, of course he will. Because he has loved them with everlasting love. You must never doubt as a Christian God's love and affection for you and his willingness to answer your prayers. He has chosen you out of the world. He has purchased you by the blood of his own son and he's adopted you into his family. I remember reading in the biography of Charles Spurgeon that he took his twin boys on one occasion to preach and they were sitting in the congregation. And after he had pronounced the benediction, he was walking down 
uh, the, the aisle and one of his sons slipped out and grabbed him uh, by his hand and walked to the door with his dad. And um, afterwards, when the, the boys were, were playing and the father was talking, another little boy came up to uh, one of the twins and said, he says, don't you know who that is? That's the great Reverend C.H. Spurgeon. To which one of the twins replied, he may be the Reverend C.H. Spurgeon, but he's my dad. He's my dad. What an incentive to pray. We come to a God with whom we have this special relationship. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he has already given us his son, will he not graciously give us all things? Yesterday it was our grandson Tom's second birthday. And uh, during lockdown, we were very much isolated from him. And he he made strange. He made strange. He's he's a bit awkward with us, especially me. You know, for some reason, he 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 kind of just doesn't like left in a room with me. But yesterday it was his birthday, and we bought him a Paw Patrol scooter. And when he saw the scooter, that relationship melted, and he was fine. We have a Father in heaven who delights to give good gifts to his children. So the character of God, our relationship with God, and the willingness of our God. The only reason why the judge answered the woman's prayer was her dogged persistence. He got fed up with her, and he wanted her out of his hair. Look at verse 5. Yet before this widow keeps Uh, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The NIV says, wear me down. That word literally means uh, two black eyes before she gives me black eyes. Now, some commentators argue that this woman was maybe violent and felt threatened by uh, and was threatening the judge and so he reluctantly gave in. But you, you remember we, if somebody has black eyes, you say, oh, you're looking very tired. And I think that's the reference rather than uh, violence, that, that she was uh, coming to him day and night and he was losing sleep. And so he gives her what she asks for. He gives it reluctantly, selfishly, unwillingly, grudgingly. Not so our God. He is willing to listen to the prayers of his people. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Speedily. That's the, the contrast. The judge unwillingly grants the widow her request. God willingly, delightfully, wonderfully hears the prayers of his people. We as Christians must never doubt his willingness to answer our prayers. We need to understand that our lack has more to do with our failure to ask than his willingness to give. 
As James says, you have not because you ask not. It's almost as if God is straining over the the portals of heaven and waiting for the desires of God's people to be expressed in prayer so that he might answer them. Now, he doesn't always answer in the way that we want, but he always answers our prayers. And we must never doubt the willingness of God to answer prayer. We don't have to engage in bribeating or arm-twisting. We used to have a man in the church, and he, he used to shout at God and, and harangue God when it came to prayer. And I had to say to him on one occasion, God's not deaf. You don't have to shout at God. He's not deaf. And you mustn't uh, limit or restrict his willingness to answer prayer. He is willing to answer prayer. Why pray? What incentives do we have to pray? The character of God. God is good. Our relationship with God. We are his people and the willingness of God. So the need for the Christian to pray, the incentives for the Christian to pray, and then very quickly the characteristics of the Christian in prayer. I think one of the main lessons uh, with uh, the parable is that we need to be patient with God. Uh, verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, not give up, not give in. Remember the context is the second coming of the Lord is delayed. And the church is waiting in this widow-like state for her Lord to return. And Jesus is saying, you must pray, you must not give up, you must be patient because God is never in a hurry. A day is like a thousand years in his sight. You, you must be patient with God. You mustn't expect immediate answers. We should pray and not give up. So that's the first thing, patience. The second thing is perseverance. You notice in verse 7, they cry out to him day and night. It's not that we do not pray, but we do not keep on praying. We do not persevere in prayer. Remember again in Matthew 7, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. That's the in the present imperative. It, it means that you, you start to, to ask, you start to seek, you start to knock, and you don't go give up. You keep asking, you keep seeking, and you keep knocking. And seeking is an intensification of asking, and knocking an intensification of asking. It's, it's a, you don't give up, you step it up each time. You keep asking. And that's hard work. Martin Luther described prayer as the sweat of the soul. It requires energy. It requires determination. It requires sacrifice. We must persevere and pray prayer. And some of you maybe have been praying for your children for years and they're not yet converted. And some of you have been praying for, for family members for years, for people in the church, and they're not converted. Don't give up. You must keep praying. You must persevere in prayer. You must be patient. You must be persevering. And then finally, you, you must be believing. 
Look at verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What faith? Faith to believe that that he will answer prayer. Faith to believe that uh, Christ will return. Prayer is possession in anticipation. Augustine said, when faith fails, prayer dies. We need to believe that God will and can answer our prayers. Remember Hebrews 11 and verse 6, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists. And listen, he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That you must believe that He is willing, that He delights to give these good gifts to our children. So when we, uh, to His children. And so when we pray, we must be patient. We must persevere. And we must believe that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. That's the teaching of the parable of the persistent widow. Amen.